This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Kate Legg, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. Now, let me introduce Kate. She's an award-winning journalist and an author who has chronicled social and political affairs since the 1980s. Her novel, The Unexpected Elements of Love, was long-listed for the Miles Franklin Award. Her non-fiction book, Kindred, A Cradle Mountain Love Story, was a finalist in the Queensland Literary Awards. Her latest novel, Infidelity and Other Affairs, asks the question... Is unfaithfulness a predisposition or a learned behaviour? From there, Kate contemplates a vast catalogue of behaviours as she strives to understand how we become who we are. It's such an interesting, emotional, uh, I don't know, I can't think of all the things that I want to say about it yet, Um, but, wow, powerful. Mm. Uh, Well, I hope so. That's, of course, why you write you put one word in front of another to try and um, understand the world and to understand what you've experienced and also in the hope, of course, that by writing you are reaching out to other people and they might be helped to understand whatever they're going through. Mm -hmm. I spent 40 years as a journalist asking others to bear their soul and in that spirit I've unburdened mine and I've been as honest as I expected or hoped that others would be with me, and that's part of the contract. And um, and so that was really um, the, the the prism which I looked through when I was writing this book. Okay, so you're a journalist. Just tell me a bit about your career and then how you came to write long form. Talk to me about that. Oh goodness me! Well, I started off as I, I discovered journalism in the um, uh, bowels of Farago newspaper at Melbourne University. And I, I just, it was, it was a, a job I couldn't believe that someone would pay you to do. I wrote, used to write theatre reviews for the Melbourne Times. I did whatever I could. And then I joined The Age and began a 40-year career, which, which started in Canberra covering politics for The Age. And then we were, my husband was posted to Washington, D.C., and I had to sort of find a role for myself. I was sort of mostly housebound with children. I then hadn't been given a role at The Australian, which was where I began writing. And I began oversharing my life, I guess, from an early stage because I discovered the columns of Anna Quinlan for The New York Times and she was a journalist who 
I respected and admired and she, she, she wrote about the personal. She wrote about what was going on in her life. And not many, it was mostly a male-dominated profession then. Not many women were writing and it was an inspiration to me. I'd also had a lesson from a fabulous political journalist who worked for the Sydney Morning Herald when I, we were both in Canberra in the 1980s. And I remember him telling me one day that he'd been writing columns and covering national politics and reform agendas for 40 years, but it was the column he wrote about odd socks that got more response than anything else he'd ever written. And I really decided then that there was a whole vast canvas of life that wasn't being covered. So we lived in Washington. It was a very difficult time. There was a crack battle over, over um, a battle over crack cocaine in the streets. And Washington, D.C. was the murder capital of America at that stage. There was a, a sign at our local laundromat which asked patrons to take their bullets out of their jeans before they put them in the machine. We had bars on every window in the house. There were gunshots. A neighbour was killed in a, in a... got caught in the crossfire of a, of a gun um, shootout. There were helicopters going overhead at night. So it was a really um, startling environment to live in. And I guess I wanted to transcribe and record that for people who mightn't have understood what it was like living in that sort of semi-war zone. <laughs> and so then I came back to Australia and um, worked in um, Sydney for The Australian, always doing um, profiles, covering political figures, social policy. And, of course, because I loved to write and that was always what I wanted to do, I, was, um, I tried as hard as I could to secure a little berth on the uh, uh, silken snare of the magazine, you know, where you can write at length 4,000-word features. And um, I began doing that in the late uh, 1990s and continued for another 20 years working for the Weekend Australian magazine and in the between times writing a couple of novels and a non-fiction history of the two botanists who worked so hard to preserve Cradle Mountain National Park. Mm. Okay, mm. so talk to me about infidelity and other affairs. Um, it's non-fiction. It's, um, yes. it's very, as I said earlier, it does, um, it's hard to read, you know, at times, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's raw. And why is it hard to read, you think, because of the, because of the honesty or because of touching on difficult issues? Yeah, it's I so think personal? it's, I think for me I'd had the personal experience, so, yeah, it was hard. Yeah, yeah. It was like uh, removing an old Band-Aid, actually. <laughs> mm. So talk to me about why you wrote it. Well, I had been, um, the events, the infidelity that occurred in my marriage, the, those events go back 17 years. And when they happened, of course, a writer's first therapeutic reflex is to write. And I sought the advice of a literary agent who was a very good friend of mine, and she said, that's not a good idea, don't do that. So I did take some notes at the time, but I put it aside and I got busy with my life and continued to work. And the work, of course, was a great distraction because there was a lot of pain and anguish and angst and we continued to try and work at our marriage for, for you know, four or five or six years before we broke apart. So I returned to it when I retired from work and my idea originally was to write a fictional story of these four generations in my husband's family because it's a fascinating story. There's the story of his grandmother, which is a history of hearsay because everybody in those events is no longer with us. There was his father who had a long-standing affair that eventually broke up his marriage. 
then there was our marriage, and then my son, who was engaged to be married, had an affair that broke up that relationship. And it was in the wake of that that I really started to think about what were the links between these four cases of infidelity. But I was still very much focused on the idea of writing a novel because, of course, it's much easier in an imaginative yeah. realm to explore some of these issues. And so I began to research each period because each period defines you know, the nature of the relationship. Of course it does. I mean, it's also this book it covers a 100 years of Australian life and, and it covers a century of progress for women. So what women faced in, 19, in the 1930s, they no longer face now. So it told that sort of story. And so I was beginning the research and then we had lockdown. And while I was in lockdown, I came across the most beautiful poem by W.B. Yeats called The Circus Animal's Desertion. And the last verse of that poem, if I can say it to you, it starts off, those wonderful, those, those wonderful images, because complete, grew in pure mind, but out of what began, a mound of refuse or the sweepings of a street, old bottles, old kettles and a broken can, old iron, old bones, old rags, that raving slut who keeps the till. Now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start, in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. And that metaphor of the beginning of life really took hold of my imagination. And at the same time, as these events were occurring in my mind, I had begun going through all of my father's papers and our personal papers that were archived in a filing cabinet in the garage. And while going through those papers, I began to untangle the strands that afflict my own family, you know, the curse of mental illness and depression that casts a terrible shadow over my family and I decided then that what I was really interested in doing was having an authentic voice and telling the story which I, of my husband's family and, and what had happened and, and how infidelity had rippled through this clan and how my own family had to deal with these issues of, of um, mental illness and neural diversity, as my older brother calls mm. it. And I just, I could see, I, I, I just, that was, that it just, it grabbed hold of me and it required some negotiation because my husband at that stage thought I was writing fiction. And so I had to have a conversation with him on the front porch and to tell him that I was thinking of changing direction. And there was a very, very, very long pause. Mm -hmm. I can <laughs> as imagine. He processed it. Yeah, I can but imagine. I always, I said to him, let me see what I can do. Let me see what I can write and then see, if, you know, I was never going to publish anything that, that my family couldn't live with. I just would never have done that. I'm not that sort of person. Mm. So it always was in the context of if people could live with what I wrote. And I have to give credit to my husband. You know, he's a, um, a student of history and a journalist at heart and he married a storyteller for whom everything is copy. And he understood and because the story and the telling of the story was tempered by the passage of time and the shift in perspective that brings. So it's not an angry book. It's a, written from a place of peace and forgiveness and acceptance. And that's the sort of architecture of the book. And, uh, you know, and, in the, and when I presented him with the first draft, he went for a long walk 
and came back and told me he thought it was too judgmental. And one of the things that I've found as a journalist, and particularly writing long-form long magazine articles, is that I used to often give subjects, particularly those who were talking about incredibly personal, difficult things, I'd give them a draft to read before it was published, and it kept me honest. It kept me honest as a writer. I wasn't able to amp up things and take them out of contest text, exaggerate them. And, and knowing that my husband and my family, my mother-in-law and my son would read this book, made it kept me honest in my um, handling of the material. So, uh, you know, I was grateful for that. Mm. And Annabelle Crabb, in a series of emails with me, she said to me, um, a uh, cheating status anxious man in the media is not a rare thing, but a man who understands his wife's need to write about it sure is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now, um, it ha- you know, of course, as I said, it happened to me and it's a, it's a really um, a dreadful betrayal, I feel, um, and it was mm. a long time ago. Mm. However... I feel, and, and I don't know if this is true, I don't have any stats around it, but the more the more I talk to people, the more I read, you know, the more I interview people on this podcast, it seems mm. that adultery is a little bit old-fashioned because mm. there's an expectation now that we are freer, you know, that mm. we are mm. freer to love people. This young girl mm. worked for me a few years ago now and she told me she was... Um, uh, polyamorous, yeah. right? And beautiful young thing. Um, and we worked together for a while. She's, you know, obviously a lot younger than me. She was in her early twenties or mid twenties, I think. Um, and then one day she 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 was at work and she wasn't very happy. And I said to her, "Are you okay?" And she started to cry. And she said that she feels that you know, being in this situation where she is dating five, she's in a relationship with five other men. You know, she's a lot younger than me, she said, and which was absolutely true, but that, you know, that young people think differently. And it's old-fashioned now to think of being with the same partner, you know, mm, for 20 mm. years, 30 years, whatever. Mm, mm, and mm, I wonder, mm. do you have, can you shed any light on that? Is that true? 
Well, I do think in the conversations that I've had with younger people, they are, you know, have a completely different view of relationships. I mean, you just have to think about it. Women yeah. don't need a don't need a don't need a husband in the home to raise a child. They've got they they're financially independent. They don't really need a man anymore. The rules have changed dramatically. I mean, once upon a time, you read Madame Bovary or Anna Karenina. You know, people had to be married for social status, for security, for safety. They it was an entirely different world, and things have changed enormously and we talk about everything now and love you know love matters it's this it's the goal that everyone aspires to and in a sense it's a little unrealistic you know I think in so many ways passion is a fleeting the beginning of love I don't think that it necessarily survives in that form and, and and love then has to become something deeper and more meaningful in your life I would never dare to tell anybody I mean, I'm no expert, I'm not a marriage therapist, my goodness me, my life has been a series of mistakes that I've sometimes learned from. I wouldn't try and tell anybody what to do and, and similarly, you know, when people come to you when they're in the midst of having discovered an affair in their relationships, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare to tell anybody what to do. You have to decide what you is best for you. Um, but so you're right. You, yeah. I don't, but I don't. I don't know, and I th- but I think but sometimes they're more censorious, the young too. I mean, a friend mm-hmm. of mine had gone to see her daughter the other day and she told her about my book and the daughter was absolutely horrified, you know, A, that it had happened and B, that I would write about it. And so, you know, I think you get, you get a, a, as we do with everything now, you get a multiplicity of views and a diversity, a spectrum of people. You know, there'll be some at that end who will be in relationships. They talk about ethical monogamy now, which is if you're, you're, you're together with one person but you, you've got this agreement about honesty and if you want to go off and have a fling with somebody else, then you will and nothing will fall apart. So, you know, there's all sorts of relationships now that we're so much more accepting of than we ever have been in the history of mankind, humankind. Um, so, so there yeah. are, and that's what I want to talk about, because there are all those things. And, you know, I I, I know couples that are in what's, you know, termed an open, open relationship. relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I think that that's an agreement that you make together for sure that, you mm-hmm. know, that you're going to do mm-hmm. it. But I still think there is the emotion and the human heart and the hurt mm-hmm. and the betrayal. Mm-hmm. But it's the lying, it's the lying. As Helen Garner wrote in her diaries after the breakdown of her marriage, lying to, she left a note for her ex saying, lying to people makes them crazy. Mm. And that is the worst in a way. It's the suspicion and the lies. The lies then, you know, breed this poisonous suspicion. You just become colonised by this preoccupation, you know, with finding out whether you've been dudded again. And that's the most damaging and, and terrible aspect mm. of these things, which is why I would advocate, if anything, some measure of honesty. And, and that comes from some of the therapists that I read. For example, Dan Savage, who describes himself as gay, married and monogamish. So he says, we promise not to stray, but sometimes we do. And if we do, it shouldn't necessarily be the end of everything try and salvage the best of the relationship. What he advocates up front is honesty, honesty, honesty. So that saves people from the damage of being lied to Mm. because your whole world turns upside down and what you thought was the past, you then have to reconcile with what you now know to have happened. And it really does It does. For me it felt like that the, the seal on the relationship was now broken. 
Mm-hmm. And what what happened to you? So it was a marriage, or was it just yeah? A it was a marriage. It was a marriage. marriage. Yeah, and, and he, he had an affair. Mm. And, and it was did the lie. Separate? No. Separate he... No, you stayed together, or you tried we, to make it work. Or... We tried to make it work, but then he had another one, and then we separated. Oh, right. But they mm-hmm. see, and that's my other point too. I I want to talk about. Do you think that is you know that some people have it in them and some people don't? Well, that's what I discovered. Now I, that's I right. these studies and the and the and the research that I quote in the book are correlation only. There's no proof of cause and effect. But the two ideas that interested me most was the research that was completed in 2017, which asked the question, is this behaviour learnt at home? They found in three separate studies that um, offspring who'd been exposed to a parental affair were significantly more likely to follow that example, although the magnitude of the effect was small. And it makes sense to me in a little, in a way, because, you know, we learn everything at home. We learn so many things. We learn about reconciliation. We learn about violence. We learn about professions. We learn about emotions and values at home. So why wouldn't we take this on board? Even if it just leaves a door in our mind ajar for what we might do in a, in a relationship that we're unhappy in or that we're discontented with. And the other research, which was really mind-blowing to me, was the, this, the studies of voles in America by zoologists. And they found that they were, they were conducting a sort of routine population study of voles in the bluegrass fields around um, Illinois. And they realised the voles were turning up in pairs. Now, this is extremely, there's a tiny percentage of mammalian species where, you know, the, the, the animals mate and bond and then, you know, nurture their young together. And this was what the voles were doing. They subsequently found out that, in fact, there was some opportunistic infidelity amongst the prairie voles. But they they then broadened their research and they started looking at the, this other population of voles from the Rocky Mountains. And they found that those voles rooted and left. They didn't hang around for a moment. They were promiscuous and gadabout. The, the prairie vole and the montane vole are 99% genetically alike, except for 1% of difference enter a team of neuroscientists who started to focus on the difference in the neural pathways between these two voles, and they found that the nurturing and attached prairie vole had many more neuroreceptors to receive vasopressin and oxytocin, which are the, you know, attachment bonding neurochemicals, and that these receptors were closer to the reward circuitry in the brain, whereas for the montane you know, vole, the frisky, promiscuous vole, they were they had fewer receptors and they were further away from the reward circuitry of the brain. So these neuroscientists began to ask the question that perhaps our neural pathways and our wiring, they may make some of us more predisposed to cheating. Now, of course, you know, we're never prisoners of our own biology. There's so many influences that determine the path we take. There's cultural, social, religious... And also the hourglass we inhabit, the mores and values of the time we live in. And as well, we now understand so much more about the plasticity of the brain and how it will change according to the experiences we have. But these are the questions I was so fascinated to pursue. And I don't have the answers, but I think that we're at the frontier, perhaps, of learning much more about nature and how nature may possibly predispose some people to take greater risks in search of love. 
Right. That and that's a that's a good segue for my next um question to you. There mm-hmm. is the the attitude towards sex, right? Mm. That you know, some people see it as an act of love. And mm. you know, mm. there, there's intimacy. So much, yeah, intimacy. Mm. There's so much emotion. There mm. is, you know, they mm. they will only have sex with somebody that they are love. Whereas mm. a lot, there are a lot of people where that's not important to them. And mm. I'm wondering too, because it seems to me, and I, you know, um, and you'll know this more than I do, that it's men who are more promiscuous, right, than women. But is that learnt behaviour? Is that how we were taught? To behave is that learnt behaviour for women, and is it learnt behaviour for men, or well, is it I, our biological makeup? Well, I think it was, and again, that gets back to the hourglass we inhabit and the social values of our time. Now, one of my girlfriends who had a very promiscuous father, <laughs> he worked in Canberra, and my goodness, he was a busy man. And when she came to him with her first heartbreak over infidelity, he said, "Listen, men lie, men lie. Mm-hmm. Now, women lie too." And you only have to read that early literature by Gustave Flaubert or Tolstoy to know that women are just as capable of having affairs. You know, Madame Bovary married the wrong man. She was born out of her brain and she was desperately in search of this sort of passion and love. And I think that um, although I think libido is different and pe- some people are highly sexed and others mm. are not as highly sexed. And Men and God's women. Say- yeah, yeah. Men and women, and you need yeah. to find that out before you marry someone who's going to be hungry every night. If you're not on a different diet, then that's not going to work because it's drought in the bedroom that often I think encourages people to go out and have these affairs. But I think no, I think that, that it's it's just that men have ruled this roost for so long and women haven't been able to talk about it. And but I think that women and men have as many affairs as each other. Women just hadn't had as much opportunity as they do now. And there's a brilliant book by Annie Ernaud, who's the French writer, who's um, won the Nobel Prize, and it's a book called Simple Passions. And she writes about the affair as the woman who fell for the married man. And she goes into the most exquisite and uncomfortable details about the emotional, you know, colonisation. And, and she writes at the end, she says, I discovered what people were capable of. In other words, anything, sublime or deadly desires, lack of dignity, attitudes and beliefs I had found absurd in others until I myself turned to them. Without knowing it, he brought me closer to the world. And she's just released, I think, some diaries. That, that was supposed to be fiction, but, of course, it was clear that this was she was drawing on her own experience. I think women just haven't, they haven't turned, been able to turn to this before to express, you know, their mm-hmm. affairs. But I think they have them as often as men. And I certainly know several of my girlfriends who've had the most extraordinary affairs and they kept them secret. Mm. And perhaps men too are a little, a little more careless mm. <laughs> with the details. But look, you know... It's, it's, it's a vexed area, but it's a fascinating area, and it is really, there's been a taboo. It, although we've had literature dealing with it and history just heaves with affairs, I mean, you just look at them. From, I mean, from, the, from Adam and Eve to the Trojan War, they, to Marie Antoinette, they, you know, the, the Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, Roosevelt, there are so many affairs through history that have um, occurred. And well, I just you touched on we, this we, because... Well, you know, sometimes you marry the wrong biologically appropriate person, don't you? You know? Yeah. You, you yeah. realise I mean, there's not the, the connection. 
Yeah, that's right. We we aren't school. We make we go we, we we go through more due diligence buying a bloody car or a fridge than we do marrying someone who we've met and fallen in love with. And you know, I think we get so little guidance in this area about who's appropriate to marry for us. Who's going to bring? How are we going to make a long-term, lasting, secure attachment with somebody? I mean, I I think that too often romantic love. And that whole passion thing can uh, um, lead people astray, even though I also know that that passionate sexual relationship is so important to a, to a, to a marriage and to a relationship. Mm. But as, you, as we I, said I, before, you know, you have different, different, um, different appetites. But also, too, I think, too, church, church and religion has, got, has played a lot into it, haven't they? Yes, of course. Mm. They've almost you know, got stick- an obsession with sex, haven't they? Mm, mm. And 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 divorce, and you know, yes, the, yes. Yeah. It absolutely. Were, it kept it kept everything hidden, and in so many ways, hidden mm. and shame. Mm. Anything that's got the cloak of secrecy around it, and the sort of mm. forbid, a forbid prohibition, you know, really is a hot house for um, you know foul things to grow. Mm. So we're moving into a time where sexuality for a lot of people is becoming more fluid, you know. We're moving into a time where that's, you know, perfectly socially acceptable on all levels. Do you think that that then will change our view on monogamy? Um, Well, I I don't know. I really don't have an answer to that question. Mm. Um, It's interesting though, isn't it? Outside of my remit, yes, of course, it's it's fascinating. I mean, I, I'm intrigued by by the relationships that I hear about from younger people, mm-hmm. and I mean, you just have to mention this book whenever I'm with anybody, and of course, they tell you their story. And this is what I mean about infidelity's reach. You know, I say in the book that there are conservative estimates that it happens in 25% of marriages, but I mean, how can you trust these surveys when they rely on anonymous self-reporting by people who are prone to massaging the truth? So yes. we're we're really, we're, we're really still in the dark with all of this but I I, I, the woman who took my photograph the other day she told me about her husband and her had become started to talk about this because their neighbor was having neighbor's husband was having an affair and then as a result of the conversation the husband said well look if you do want to you know have have a relationship with someone that's okay by me and she fell in lust as she said with this man and she had a couple of nights with him but but she she came home to her husband because she thought not you know, <laughs> I'm on a good wicket. Mm. Um, but she took the opportunity. Now, if you, I would never do that because I'm just a prudish, prudent person. I was raised in a home. My father was agnostic, but my grandfather was a Presbyterian minister and there were very, you know, strict pleasure was not a thing. Pleasure was not a thing. Yeah. We had the unforgiving minute was tick, tick, ticking away in our household. So I, I, I'm very prudish and prudent and I did... I say in the book that it makes me sort of dull and decent and the people who I know who dare and risk all for a moment of paradise, you know, that's not me. That's not mm. me. And, I, I mean, that, that again goes to how we're raised and how we're brought up and what we're taught to respect and admire and what are the values we adopt. But, um, yeah, no, it, it's not me. And it goes also to that thing of I just don't think I could... I'd be so aware of the consequences, I guess, mm. the consequences for those who could be you know, smashed apart by such... Well, I mean, for me, it's, it's telling the lies. 
I can't pull it mm. off. You know, that's mm. the hard No, thing, exactly. That's what my yeah. son always says to me. He says, Mum, you could never tell a lie about anything. And it is to mm. some extent that's 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 true. Mm. And so did you go and have an affair when you found out about your partner? No, you didn't. No. No, 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 I didn't. No, no. it wasn't my thing. And um, again, there's <laughs> repetition in this behaviour. That's the other thing. And there's a wonderful, you know, Nora. I don't think it stops. I think once I that person starts doing it, I don't think it stops. Yeah, yeah. That's I agree wrong. with that. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. And Nora I mean, Efron writes about that. She, 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 of course, her husband was Carl Bernstein, the famous of the Woodward and Bernstein duo, and he had an affair with a, um, with, a, with a diplomat's wife in Washington and she wrote Heartburn, which, of course, was a novel, but everyone knew who was who. And then she wrote a very searing essay on, you know, being lied to and she just said, you know, the thing about having uh, discovering an affair is that you have to continue, you, you have to find out the lies again and again and again and again before you hit rock bottom and think, mm. no, nah, that's it, mm. not going to change. Not doing not it again. Gonna... Yeah, yeah. No. Kate, we're out of time. Really super interesting book. Um, it's called <laughs> Infidelity and Other Affairs. You know, super brave, super, super candid. Mm. Um, and so many people will relate to it. So many. Mm. Mm. Oh, I hope so. Well, it's been lovely talking to you and sharing your experiences as well. And yeah, that's the book I hope will start a million conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Kate. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.